This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. World War II Radio Podcast. Today's episode consists of two segments reporting on Operation Torch, the Allied invasion of French North Africa. The first segment is a November 7, 1942 CBS special report on the invasion with updates from Eric Sefrai, Edward R. Murrow, and George Fielding Elliott. Our second segment is the CBS World News Today of November 8, 1942, with further reporting on the invasion, as well as updates on other theaters of the war. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcast, where you can find links to past episodes, as well as the books featured in our podcasts. So thanks for listening, and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, the White House announced that powerful American forces are now landing on the Mediterranean and Atlantic coasts of the French colonies in Africa. For more details, we take you now to CBS Washington, Eric Severide reporting. The first news came from the president himself here in Washington. We were told the American force is a very powerful one, equipped with adequate weapons. It is under American command. It is being assisted by the British Navy... The RAF and divisions of the British Army will soon be there to reinforce it. The proclamation from the President said we did this to forestall an invasion of Africa by Germany and Italy, which would have been a direct threat to America across the narrow sea. The President said this invasion provides an effective second front assistance to our heroic allies in Russia. He said the French government and people have been assured the Allies seek no territory and have no intention of interfering with friendly French authorities in Africa. He asked the French government and people to cooperate with our expedition in the interest of liberating France and her empire from the Axis yoke. He says further, the expedition will develop into a major effort by the Allied nations. Everything was coordinated, even a broadcast previously recorded by the president himself to the French people. He speaks excellent French and he made this in French. He spoke first of his deep friendship for the French people who, he said, are now suffering under the crushing Nazi yoke. In part, he said, we come among you solely to defeat and rout your enemies. Have faith in our words. We do not want to cause you any harm. We assure you that once the menace of Germany and Italy is removed from you, we shall quit your territory at once. Do not obstruct, I beg of you, this great purpose. Help us where you are able, my friends, and we shall see again the glorious day when liberty and peace shall reign on the earth. He closed with the words, 
Vive la France Eternelle, which is Long Live Eternal France. General Eisenhower, the quiet Middle Western officer who commands our men in England, also spoke to the French by radio. He addressed himself to the French armies and naval and air forces. He said, we come to you as friends to make war against your enemies. I have given formal orders that no offensive action shall be taken against you on condition that for your part you take the same attitude. To avoid possible misunderstanding, make the following signals. By day, fly the French tricolor and the American flag one above the other. I repeat, by day, fly the French tricolor and the American flag one above the other. By night, turn on a searchlight and direct it vertically toward the sky. To all naval and merchant marine units, first, stay where you are. Secondly, make no attempt to scuttle your vessels. To Coast Guard units, withdraw from the neighborhood of your cannon and your station. To aviation units, do not take off. Any refusal to follow these orders will be taken as proof of hostile intentions. An ending, General Eisenhower said, we shall not be the first to fire. We summon you as comrades to the common fight against the invaders of France. The war has entered the phase of liberation. There in brief is a story. The State Department will have a statement to make tomorrow morning. The French ambassador here could not be reached. He was reported to be at a dinner party somewhere in Washington. And now for the news on this from England, we take you now to CBS London, Edward R. Murrow reporting. This is London. Our part of the war is going to winter around the Mediterranean. The Axis forces are already spread thin, and this will spread them even more. The key to the whole operation, carefully timed to coincide with the offensive in Egypt, is Tripoli. Tripoli and Allied hands would mean the end of Axis hopes in Africa. Until Tripoli is ours, the Germans can pass powerful forces across the narrow Sicilian channel. People here are already discussing the Axis response to this offensive. They may go down through Spain, or they may take over the rest of France, or both. One thing is certain. This move, no matter how successful it may be, removes none of the need for urgency in production and action. For each week, Germany adds to her control of the continent and strengthens her position, making all Europe into one giant hedgehog. The secret of this operation was well kept. Many knew something was coming, and when. But tonight, radio transmitters are hot, carrying the message to the continent. The news of actual operations will be scanty because of the shortage of technical transmission. But there are plenty of war correspondents with the force, including my colleague Charles Collingwood. And you'll have plenty of news after the first few days. Tonight's news will lift British hearts, but there will be no final flourish of trumpets. This may be the turning point of the war. But the road to this point has been long and hard. And every child here knows that Germany must finally be beaten on the continent. We went to Africa because we had the stuff to go there. There is no news about resistance encountered, but there is no reason to think it will not be stubborn. The French have plenty of planes, but most of them are obsolete. The people who are running this operation did not expect the picnic. You will notice that Dakar, one of the best naval bases in the world, is not mentioned. It would be interesting to look at some of the distances involved. From Chad in free French territory to Benghazi is 750 miles, but it could be done. From Dakar to Tripoli airline is 2,800 miles. This action may not 
fully satisfy the Russians, but at least they knew all about it in advance. It's a combined operation, launched after careful planning. We chose the time, the place, and the ground. This offensive is commanded by General Ike Eisenhower, and he is not a man to look back. I have heard him say that when units of his army went anywhere, there would be no coming back. If ever a general enjoyed the confidence and respect of his troops, it's Ike Eisenhower. This is the second installment of the offensive phase. There will be others, and probably before very long. But this is no time for speculation. And now to CBS Washington for an analysis by Major George Fielding Elliott. We are watching the unfolding of a mighty plan of coordinated grand strategy, which has for its purpose nothing less than the transforming of the whole continent of Africa into one vast base of operations against Nazi-occupied Europe. The first phase of this great United Nations master plan, a cornerstone, so to speak, upon which the whole edifice rests, was the crushing of the Axis armies in Egypt by the Allied Army, Air Force, and Fleet under the unified command of General Sir Harold Alexander of the British Army. This phase has been successfully completed. Only minor operations remain to completely eliminate Axis resistance in Egypt and probably in Libya. The second phase has now arrived with the landing of very large and powerfully equipped American forces in French North Africa, supported by British planes and ships, the whole under the unified command of Lieutenant General Dwight D. Eisenhower of the United States Army. Thus comes to an end with a dramatic swiftness hardly paralleled in history, any Axis hope of further penetration of Africa. And thus the north shore of that continent becomes almost certainly a base of operations for offensives directed against the soft underside of the European continent. The second front is here. The exact locations where landings have taken place are as yet uncertain. One seems likely to be Casablanca, the best equipped seaport on the Atlantic coast of French Morocco. The War Department communique speaks of numerous landings. One other, at least, and perhaps more, are certainly on the Mediterranean coast, where the principal naval bases are Oran and Bizerta. A Vichy dispatch has stated that an Allied convoy was passing yesterday down the Mediterranean coast of Algeria, had passed Oran and Algiers, and was nearing the Strait of Sicily. This convoy may be intended for Bizerta. It may be carrying a landing force to seize the famous Marath Line on the border between Tunisia and Tripolitania, or it may be directed against the great Axis supply base of Tripoli itself. The purpose of the reported numerous landings is, of course, to prevent the gathering of any powerful concentrations to resist the American troops. The French troops in North Africa are scattered in many small garrisons, from Marrakesh in western Morocco all the way to Sousus in southeastern Tunisia. The other principal garrisons are Fez, Rabat, Casablanca, Meknes, Clemson, Sidi Belabes, Ujda, Algiers, Oran, Constantine, Beskra, Sfax, Tunis, Bizerta, and Gavis. To prevent the gathering of the regiments at these points into an army of resistance, it would only be necessary to land at a few key points and to occupy rail centers. The main lines of railway run generally east and west, parallel to the coast and within easy reach from it. The great point to be determined immediately is whether the French will resist at all. If they do, they probably will not be able to resist very effectively. They have few, if any, tanks, only some seven to 800 planes, many of which are obsolete and almost all in poor condition. They are very short of artillery ammunition, and they have almost no motor fuel. 
Moreover, after two dispiriting years of routine garrison duty, under the conditions imposed on them by the armistice, the spirit of officers and men for resistance to the American forces can hardly be expected to be very high. And the tremendous moral effect of the British victories in Egypt must be counted on as a major factor. It should be noted that this landing in North Africa is a far more effective means of accomplishing all our objectives than an attempt, for example, to take Dakar. If this North African show succeeds, Dakar will fall into our laps like a ripe apple. Its communications with France and with the European continent in general will be completely cut. In fact, the whole plan appears to have been most carefully worked out on a vast scale suited to this total and global war. The air attacks on Genoa, principal port of disembarkation for North Africa, are part of this scheme as well as the numerous alarms and excursions along the West African coast for Li in Liberia, for example, which appear to have completely deceived the Axis up to a few days ago when the Axis radio suddenly became frantically anxious as the ships began to gather at Gibraltar. No more details are available now, but this much can be definitely said. The great Allied offensive has begun. The turning point of the war has come. The second front is here. We return you now to CBS in New York and John Daly. And that's the latest news of the American offensive against the north and west coasts of French Morocco. As Mr. Morrow told you from London, CBS correspondent Charles Collingwood is with the invading forces. CBS will bring you his reports direct or via London as fast as they are released from the scene of the invasion. In addition, CBS World News Headquarters here in New York will bring you the latest developments as they are released in Washington, London, and Cairo and reported to our World News Headquarters here in New York by the press associations or by our correspondents abroad. Mr. Collingwood may not file a report for some time since the presidential announcement was released at the same time that the invasion started. But we can expect a report from Mr. Collingwood as soon as the military set up a censorship organization and make the necessary arrangements to release news to this country and to London. The news may not come direct immediately, but we shall get those reports from London as soon as they are released. Later news of this important war development tonight will be heard over some of these stations at 10.45 o'clock Eastern War Time with Fraser Hunt. Over others, Ned Kalmer will bring you the news at 11 o'clock, followed by another analysis by Major George Fielding Elliott. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. by Continental Radio and Television Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. By shortwave broadcast, direct from world capitals, as well as the leading news centers of our own country, CBS correspondents are waiting to bring you a complete report from the world's political and battle fronts. But first, here's John Daly with a summary of headline news as received in New York. The American invasion force has made landings at Oran and Algiers on the north coast of French North Africa and somewhere on the west coast. These first official details came in a War Department communique released about an hour ago, which listed the generals commanding the American units under Commander-in-Chief Lieutenant General Ike Eisenhower. Among the commands are Brigadier General Jimmy Doolittle for air and one of America's foremost tank experts, Major General George S. Patton, commanding the forces landing on the west coast 
an indication that formidable armored units spearhead our attack. The Vichy radio supplied some details of the landings on the west coast. They say that bridgeheads have been established both north and south of Casablanca, at Rabat in the north, and at Safi in the south. And from the French reports, it's apparent that landing operations of a major scale are going on. Vichy also confirmed the landings on the north coast at Oran and Algiers. The German radio, quoting Spanish sources, reports that additional Allied fleet and transport units left Gibraltar today. There can be little doubt that our invasion forces are large. The Vichy radio estimates that we have thrown 140,000 men into the operation and adds that British divisions are already on the way to reinforce us. An earlier War Department communique made it clear that this operation has been carefully planned over a period of months and nothing has been left out. Vichy reports already admit that some French troops revolted against the Vichy command and there were broadcasts over the Casablanca radio reportedly asking Frenchmen to cooperate with the American invasion forces. We also have learned to use the fifth column. In Berlin, Adolf Hitler is right now making a speech on the eve of the 19th anniversary of the Munich Putsch. There can be little doubt that the German people are stunned by the invasion of Vichy North Africa by our troops. But so far in the speech, the best he has offered them is that he will prepare for all blows. CBS correspondent Charles Cullingwood is with the invasion forces, but as yet there are no communication facilities which he may use for a report. However, we can contact our correspondent in the other North African theater. For Cairo's reaction and the news there, we take you now to CBS Cairo, Winston Burdett reporting. It's all over but the shouting on this side of Libya. In the battle that knocked him out of Egypt, Rommel is believed to have lost at least three-fifths of his troops. The Axis armies crumbled as they fled, dropping huge pieces all the way to the border, jettisoning arms and men, abandoning whole units, especially Italian units, leaving hundreds of guns and tanks behind them and thousands of trucks and half a dozen valuable headquarters and many, many thousand dead. Somewhere between Matru and a place called Bagush, German armor made its last hopeless stand. They had 28 tanks and three 88-millimeter guns in that fight. This was probably most of what they had left in tanks at that time. My own guess is that Rommel today has salvaged enough tanks to form a football team with possibly a few subs for the last quarter. Yesterday, British armored cars were still herding in the stragglers. Around Fuka, many German troops fell out and let themselves be captured. West of Matru, we were still picking up Italians by the thousands. I think this hall just about finished off the Italian armies in Egypt. Today, the British are tumbling west so fast that they have not been able to list the booty. We know now why the Luftwaffe has not been around for the past three days. Most of it is a blitz shambles lying around on captured airfields. Some of it is still intact. At one base, we found five Messerschmitt 109 ready to take off, with mass tanks full and bomb racks loaded. Somebody left in an awful hurry, and why they didn't fly away, I don't know. We also found dozens of American trucks, which came over here in least Len days, and were then captured by the Germans and used by them throughout the summer. One parking lot alone produced 60 vehicles, all with their ignition keys in place, and packed with the belongings of officers and men, who also were in a hurry to decamp, but then something happened and they found they were too late. Rommel now is falling back toward bases where he can pick up personnel and some extra supplies. But I can't see how he can make much of a stand in Libya. Rommel personally may make his next stop Benghazi or Berlin. But the fight on this side of Africa is going to be pure desert chase for several weeks to come. And now you will hear Larry LeSeur 
who has just come here from Moscow. I've come to Kyle from another world. I came into a world of bright tropical sunshine, well-dressed people, and food aplenty. I left behind a world of drab gray monotone, of people in old clothes with set faces, a cold land of rain and snow squalls, the world that is called Moscow and Russia. Moscow and Cairo have at least one thing in common. They both believe that their war is the war. When they hear I come from Russia, everyone I meet, from officials to taxi drivers, asks me how the war in Russia is going. Then as soon as I start to tell them, they break in to tell me about the war which is nearest to them, the war in the desert. Today's new war, the American landing in French North Africa, was such a well-kept secret here that it came as a great surprise and the ordinary man on the Cairo streets hasn't begun to grasp its implications yet. Up in Moscow, the Russian people probably haven't learned about the American landing. When they do, which will no doubt be tomorrow morning on their internal radio system with its loudspeaker in every house, they'll be pleased in a mild way. They'll be pleased to know the American war preparations have reached such a stage that we are able to take the offenses somewhere fairly near Europe. But there'll be no dancing in the streets of Moscow because nothing will really please the Russian people except an actual allied offensive in Egypt, rather in Europe. Something they can really feel is taking the main burden of the German army off their backs. When I left Moscow after a year in Russia, I could see some bitterness. They really thought there was going to be a second front this year. The Soviet newspapers hinted at it constantly. And undoubtedly, the average Russian feels let down. But there's still a good deal of sympathy for America's position. But underlying this feeling of disappointment, there's a fierce pride. A burning pride, which has much to do with the incredible Russian resistance at Stalingrad. That pride is going to go a long way toward holding up the morale of Russian civilians this winter. And it's going to be a tough winter. They're going to be short of food. Some people are going to go hungry. A lot of people are going to be cold. I left Moscow in a driving, wet snow squall. But the heat hadn't yet been turned on in any Moscow apartment house. The people are going to be short of clothes. But by patching up their coats, they'll make them last another winter. They're going to be very short of shoes. More and more often, I heard the clack-clacking of wooden-soled shoes on the Moscow pavement. Everything is going to the Red Army. Prices of rationed food are strictly controlled in Moscow. But in the public markets, governed only by the laws of supply and demand, prices of unrationed food have soared. A day's pay for a couple of pounds of potatoes. Almost a month's pay for a couple of pounds of butter. But of course, this gives the workers something to spend their rubles on. You see, every factory in Russia is turned to war production. There's very little a civilian can buy, except in the second-hand stores. Yet a few things are being done to make the Russian capital more cheerful this winter. Moscow has been dolled up with a new set of streetlights that go far to dissipate the gloom of the long winter nights. There'll be more entertainments and shows this year because Moscow is now considered safe. The military situation is good. The Russian armies are intact all the way from Leningrad to Stalingrad. The main reserves of the Red Army were not used this summer in the small diversion offenses. Russia will have another opportunity this winter to train more reserves. More women will enter the war factories to relieve men for the front. But there's no getting away from the fact that Russia has lost an appreciable part of its ability to produce war machines. With the loss of the Don Basin 
and the destruction of the huge factories at Stalingrad. Unless they can get a lot more tanks from America and England, it will be very difficult for them to launch a major offensive next year. But the Red Army has not lost its ability to engage a lot of German troops. The Battle of Stalingrad will reach a precarious point for both sides in about two or three weeks when the Volga freezes up and the fight in the Caucasus has a long time to go on. But the Russians have a saying. Russia and summer don't get along well together. But the Red Army will be in action this winter because winter belongs to Russia. And now to CBS in London. Bob Trout reporting. London spent this Sunday trying to fit together the pieces of information always so teasingly meager at the start of an operation. Allied headquarter announcements are released in Washington at the same time as here, but London is still getting most of the news of definite place names from Vichy Radio. And Vichy tells us the harbor and town of Algiers have been attacked, landings made and a foothold gained, and the situation is serious. 200 miles and more to the west, about halfway between Algiers and Gibraltar, the port of Oran has been attacked. Two places, a few miles on either side of Oran, have been occupied. That's the Mediterranean front. Around on the Atlantic coast, says Vichy, the airfield at the capital, Rabat, has been attacked from the air. Next most important port in Morocco, Casablanca, has been attacked from both air and sea. Vichy also reports landings at two places along the 60-mile stretch of coast between these two cities of Rabat and Casablanca. And some 140 miles farther down the Atlantic coast, an important force has been landed at Safi. Vichy Radio, heard in London, makes it clear that the Vichy government is still helping Germany. And Vichy complains that radio is being used as a weapon. They claim that secret radio stations are using the wavelengths of French North African stations. And they insist that General Giraud's spectacular broadcast was a fake. There is no reason at all to think it was a fake. And that's a very brief sketch of what London knows about the African operations so far. London also knows that these long-planned operations on the northwest corner of the African continent have been timed to fit into the British Eighth Army's victory over the Axis nearer the northeast corner of Africa. Royal Air Force attacks from this island, like those of the last two nights on Genoa, are part of the battle of North Africa and the Mediterranean Sea. Next to CBS New York and John Daly. And here is a message from our sponsor. Picture yourself inside a submarine of the United States Navy. A critical moment is at hand. Stand by, torpedo room. Ready, sound room. Give me a bearing. One, five, six. One, five, seven, eight. Range 1700. Stand by, torpedo tube. Set gyro at 120 degrees. Fire on one, six, oh. One, five, nine, one, six, oh. Fire. A torpedo cuts through the water, speeds toward a Jap warship, rips a jagged hole through the hull. Yet not one member of the American submarine crew has seen the enemy ship. Many are the wonders of the radio equipment used by Uncle Sam's fighting men in locating enemy targets and directing attacks against them. Admiral workers in both great admiral plants are proud to be building as much of this equipment as they can. The same workers whose skill earned Admiral Radio the reputation of being America's smart set. Admiral will continue to work 100% for the war effort until we've won the victory. 
This means no more Admiral radios can be built for civilian use. But most Admiral dealers still have a limited supply of the famous Admiral Victory line. The latest model Admiral radios and Admiral radio phonograph combinations with automatic record changes. Ask your Admiral dealer to demonstrate them for you. Now, here again is John Daly. We have heard the latest developments from the newly opened and the old war theaters in North Africa. Now to another war zone, the Southwest Pacific. Admiral Radio takes you to CBS Honolulu, Webley Edwards reporting. News of the great British drive and of the American Expeditionary Force in Africa hit these Hawaiian islands with an enthusiastic reception. But let this be one voice to shout that there still is a bitter war in the Pacific against a powerful foe. To highlight the fight in the Southwest Pacific, let me introduce Lieutenant Chester Buds of Housatonic, Massachusetts, who has been both co-pilot and pilot of a flying fortress. He has just arrived in Hawaii after more than 60 missions in the Southwest Pacific. The kind of fighting our flying men are doing in the New Guinea area makes veterans of men in a few months. Lieutenant Buds, in all your flights, what is most memorable? We took off one dawn in a fortress looking for Japanese ships. Off the coast of New Guinea, we started a Jap convoy. They cut loose with an anti-aircraft, and then we came face-to-face -face with 10 Jap Zero. Well, what did they do? They spread and came in from all directions. Our top gunner, Sergeant Ben Hale, blew up one of them. We fought them for 10 minutes more. Then our tail gunner, Sergeant Bob Forsyth, blew a Jap pilot right out of his plane. Both he and the plane dropped to a crash. Well, Lieutenant, uh, any of your men wounded? Our side gunner, Sergeant Gradle, was wounded, but he kept shooting. In about two minutes, our bottom gunner, Sergeant Bob Curtis, smashed another zero. Got wounded, but kept on shooting. How long did you fight them? We fought them for an hour, heading for Port Moresby. Fifty minutes of fighting, and our radio operator, Sergeant Jim Clark, blew up a fourth zero. And then the rest of them peeled off and turned back. What was your damage? They put about 300 bullet holes in us, and about 15 cannon holes. They knocked out two of our four engines, shot away the oil pressure, one of the aileron cables, and flattened one tire. We came over the Owen Stanley Mountains on two motors and into Port Moresby in the midst of an air raid. With only two motors, all we could do was to go in, and we did. We were plenty glad to be back on land. Our wounded men were both okay, and that's the way the fighting is in the southwest Pacific. And plenty right in it. Lieutenant Leonard Hummerson, Lieutenant Buds, Lieutenant Ernest Reed, and the Sergeants Hale, Clark, Freeman, Forsyth, Gradle, and Curtis were decorated with a silver star for gallantry in this action. Yes, America, there's still a tough war to be won in the Pacific. Barbara Edwards in Honolulu returning you to Columbia in New York. Much of our news of the North African situation is coming from Washington, where the War Department has issued several communiques, and the Navy has given out more news of the fighting of, on Guadalcanal since we've been on the air. For the latest developments, Admiral Radio turns now to CBS Washington, Lee White reporting. The War Department has just announced that American forces are now landing at Oran and Algiers on the Mediterranean coast of Africa and at another unannounced spot on the Atlantic coast. The same communique also reveals that Major General Mark W. Clark is the Deputy Commander-in-Chief of the current operations in North Africa. Also, that Brigadier General James H. Doolittle of Tokyo fame is the commander of American Air Forces in the operations. Major Clark is a relatively young man to hold the rank of Major General. He is only 46 years old. He has, however, seen service in France during the last war when, as a captain, he was wounded in action. 
At the same time, the War Department makes public a message sent to General Eisenhower by General George C. Marshall, Chief of Staff of the United States Army. The message was dispatched to Eisenhower before his departure for England for the North, uh, for the North African Theater. It reads, You and your command sail with the hopes and prayers of America. For months you have planned, trained, and conditioned yourselves for the great task ahead. Godspeed to your success. I have complete confidence in your leadership and in the aggressive fighting quality of your troops. And here's a communique that's just been handed to me, a, a, a communique on naval operations in the Solomons. American forces on Guadalcanal have advanced four miles beyond Coley Point, east of Henderson Field, to the Metatono River without meeting any Jap opposition. The communique also reveals that one Japanese destroyer was believed to have been sunk in action off Guadalcanal and that one cruiser and another destroyer were badly damaged. The cruiser may have been sunk. Last night in the White House, as we listened to the President's Secretary, Stephen A. Early, read off to us the proclamation of the American invasion of Africa, most of, most of the reporters present were inclined almost to shout for joy. To say it was the best news since the beginning of the war would be a gross understatement. To most of us, it was the best news in several years. I make no pretense of having suspected what was coming. I, frankly, was probably just as surprised at what we'd done as Adolf Hitler probably is today. And I think most other observers here in Washington would agree with me. It's not so much that we were joyfully surprised at learning American forces had invaded French Africa. We had suspected for several days that something of the sort would happen. But what really surprised us was that everything had been so obviously well-conceived and well-coordinated. The American people owe our army and our navy a debt of gratitude today. They've shown us that they know far better how to fight a war than most typewriter strategists. But if many of us underestimated the strategical ability of our military leaders, an overwhelming majority of us underestimated the common sense, I'm afraid, of our State Department. Since the bombshell burst last night at 9 o'clock, the picture of America's part in the war has become increasingly clear. It's like a cool, bright morning with the sunlight driving away the fog and mist of the preceding night. There's much, of course, that still can't be revealed. But it can be revealed that our policy in connection with Vichy has had the following aims. One, to obtain reliable information from week to week of the political situation in France. Two, to maintain close relations with the French people and to spur resistance. Three, to keep alive the French faith in America and our common democratic traditions. Four, to gather all military information available. Five, to prevent the French fleet and French military and naval establishments from falling into the hands of the Germans. And six, and finally, to pave the way for a military campaign to drive the Germans out of the Mediterranean. In other words, from the evidence first available today, it seems that our government was counting on a Mediterranean campaign from the very day of the Franco-German armistice two summers ago. That campaign began at 9 o'clock last night. It's the real second front. I now return you to CBS New York and John Daly. Next, an analysis of the North African military moves by Columbia's military expert, Major George Fielding Elliott. A great plan of United Nations offensive grand strategy unrolls slowly before our eyes. Its first phase has been virtually completed in Egypt with the smashing of Marshal Rommel's Axis armies. The second phase is in progress at the other corner of North Africa, as American troops land on the Mediterranean and Atlantic coasts of the French possessions there. At or near Casablanca, Rabat, Oran, and Algiers, so far as our present information goes, perhaps at other places yet to be announced. Marshal Pétain has ordered the troops in French North Africa to resist our forces. It remains to be seen whether they will or can. Vichy reports that some fighting has already taken place, but calls the situation serious. There are indications that a revolt is in progress in French North Africa with some military elements participating. 
B.C. claims that a rising at Casablanca has, put, has been put down, but admits that one battalion is still holding out. A broadcast on the Algiers radio calling on all Frenchmen to join hands with the Americans is credited to General Henri Giraud, formerly a prisoner in Germany, who escaped from German hands last summer. The military significance of these reports may be very considerable. For if the French troops are divided in their allegiance to Vichy, it will be almost out of the question for anything like prolonged resistance to be offered to the powerful American forces now landing on the coast of French North Africa. There is no immediate indication of any attempt by Axis forces to interfere with our operations, though the heavy British raids on Genoa may be interpreted as interference with any such possible move. The French fleet is reported from Berlin to be at Toulon with steam raised. This may be Nazi wishful thinking. In any case, there appear to be ample British and American naval forces present in the Mediterranean to deal with the French fleet, should it, unhappily, attempt to cover the movement of any Vichy or Axis troops toward the African coast. The seizure of the principal seaports in Algiers and Morocco will also prevent any reinforcements from arriving for this purpose. No further report has been received of the Allied convoy, reported yesterday from Vichy as steaming eastward beyond Algiers and nearing the Strait of Sicily. This may be the force which has now attacked Algiers itself, or it may represent either a descent on the Tunisian naval port of Deserta or even a direct assault on the great Axis supply base at Tripoli itself. Here's Warren Sweeney with a word from Admiral Radio. In the war between the states, the Shalindor fought an engagement two months after the war. Such an event couldn't happen today. Radio keeps troops and units in constant communication. Radio serves many military purposes, and Uncle Sam needs every radio device which can be manufactured, so take care of the radio set you now own. Most Admiral dealers still have a limited supply of new Admiral radios and Admiral radio phonograph combinations. But when this supply is exhausted, no more will be available until after we've won the war. Ask your Admiral dealer to help make your present radio last for the duration, whether it bears the Admiral name or not. Admiral dealers have every facility to give you service, whether your set needs a new tube or a damaged cabinet rebuilt. In peacetime, Admiral became the world's largest manufacturer of radio phonograph combinations with automatic record changers, partly because Admiral dealers were men upon whom the public could rely. In wartime, that confidence may be doubled, for Admiral dealers realize the importance of radio here at home. World News Today is brought to you each Sunday at this hour by Continental Radio and Television Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. Be sure to listen next Sunday when Admiral again will give you World News Today by shortwave, direct from the leading news centers of the world. Americans, this war is a matter of life or death. Don't pull your punches. If you've not already signed up for 10% in war bonds on the payroll savings plan, sign up now. Let that be your fighting answer to the enemy. Warren Sweeney speaking for Admiral Radio. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The WBBMA Theater, Wrigley Building, Chicago.